At the beginning of 1989, my girlfriend at the time, Leslie, spotted an advert in the Daily Telegraph. It was for a junior product manager at Philips Scientific, based in Cambridge. At that time, I was still a product specialist with CB Corning, with no immediate prospect of getting the lucrative product manager role. In fact, boss man Ken had told me as much in an interview. I was determined to move on, and actually I needed the money, having just bought a house and been saddled with a huge mortgage, an interest rate soaring to 15% under Mrs Thatcher, and negative equity to boot. I simply had to earn more money, and the Phillips job looked to be the ideal way. I interviewed for it and won the job with a certain amount of alacrity. On my first day in Cambridge, it was made obvious to me that I would have to go on business orientation training in Philips' headquarters city of Eindhoven in the Netherlands. At that time, Philips employed 13,500 people in Cambridge, mostly engaged in Philips Radio Systems, Philips Scientific, Philips or Pi TVT, and another group called Test and Measurement. Today, it's all gone. Sold off, merged, or operations just simply terminated as unprofitable. But back in the day, we had a sports and social club, a huge playing field, even a company shop where you could buy Philips branded goods at discounted prices. And following this corporate theme, even an airline. I asked my new boss, Viv Scott, the senior product manager, how I should best get to Eindhoven, having never been further than Amsterdam personally. Well, she said, you can get the scheduled flight into Amsterdam and then get a train to Eindhoven, or you can use the Philips aircraft if it's coming into Cambridge. Oh, that sounded quite interesting. I thought, I, how do I do that? Well, you just give Philips Aviation in Eindhoven a call. So I duly made contact with their booking desk. When do you want to travel, they said. Oh, the 3rd of August would be good, and I need to come back on the 4th. OK, we'll make a booking for you, they said. We'll send you the tickets in the post. A week or two later, the ticket duly arrived. I was to turn up at Cambridge Airport at 8.30 in the morning. Cambridge Airport is operated by Marshals of Cambridge and effectively a private airfield with a small passenger terminal. Over the years, it's had intermittent scheduled flights, mostly to holiday destinations, although in recent years, it also operated a flight from Manchester to Gothenburg via Cambridge on behalf of AstraZeneca. But that's another story. I turned up for the Eindhoven flight to find that there was a Beach King Air aircraft waiting for me. I showed my ticket, was duly stamped with my passport, and onto the plane we got. I was the only passenger, but there was also a stewardess as well as the pilot. She served smoked salmon and scrambled eggs, washed down with champagne and very good Dutch coffee for breakfast on the flight to Eindhoven. Coming back, we were on a bizjet, I think it was a Falcon 20, and there were several other, obviously, high-ranking Philips officers on that flight. I really enjoyed both of them. It was a great way to travel. Several weeks later, I was called into Viv's office for a stern talking to. What have you been doing with Philips Aviation? I said, well, I, I took a plane like you told me to. Yes, I know. I've just got the bill. It's £2,500. Apparently, they'd sent that Beechcraft aircraft just for me. And all of the charges had gone straight to our departmental budget. What Viv had failed to tell me was, you can take the Philips Aviation plane if somebody else is on it as well. Having failed to point that out to me, she could hardly complain when I'd booked the entire aircraft just for my own journey.
Once in Eindhoven, I got on famously with the country manager for the country, responsible for Philip's scientific instruments. Are you coming to the party tonight? he asked. What party? Oh, well, every Thursday, Jan Timmers, the CEO of Philips Glowlamp in Frampiken, has a party in the penthouse suite on the top of the Philips Nederland building. All sorts of people get invited. I'll see if I can get you a ticket. Well, that sounded too good to miss. I had nothing better to do that evening. And so duly at eight o'clock, suited and booted, I turned up on the top floor of the Philips Nederland building. The food arrayed before me was sumptuous. Whole sides of salmon piled on ice, surrounded by fresh shrimps from the North Sea. Caviar, roast beef, everything you could possibly think of, and about 200 people in the room, including some extremely attractive women. What is this party in aid of? Is it some kind of celebration? I asked. Oh no, no, Jan just likes a party, and pretty much has one every week. So if you're in town, it's always worth asking. I hardly need to point out that at this point, Phillips were losing money hand over fist. They were actually paying more in dividends on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange than they were making in gross profit. The flagrant abuse of the system was everywhere to be seen. Of course it couldn't last, and within a few years, under Operation Centurion, the whole of Phillips had been restructured. All of their holdings in Cambridge had been sold off, and I found myself working for the Americans. But while it lasted, it sure was a good party. On the 18th of September 1989, I flew out of Heathrow with the destination of Gothenburg. This was to be Philip's Nordic Open House, where they would take over a large hotel and invite all of their best customers to come and be entertained, fed, watered, well not actually water, mostly alcohol, and shown all of the latest instruments. As a product manager, it was my job to demonstrate the instruments and also to train the salespeople from the Nordic countries. They were a great bunch and I made lots of friends, including Jorma Turlakura from Finland, a bear-sized man whose hobby was baking his own bread and hunting elks. The hotel in the hills outside Gothenburg had its own ski jump, which was Olympic size. My colleague Mike Brown and myself climbed to the top of the ski jump and looked down that slope. How those people throw themselves off, I really don't know. It was scary. The ground seemed such a long way away and the ski slope so long. And then, of course, as you left the jump itself, you were flying through the air some 10 to 20 metres above the ground. It's clearly a very skilled sport and not one I intend to try anytime soon. When the conference in Gothenburg closed, I routed back via Stockholm Orlando and a three-hour plane change, which allowed me just enough time for a quick romantic interlude with Ava Clausen, who I'd met previously in Finland. Sadly, the cost of international air travel in those days was prohibiting us having a proper relationship, but we remained good friends for many years. It was to be the first of many visits to Sweden, a country I'm still very fond of, and which has a very proud aviation history all of its own, including an excellent Air Force Museum at Linköping, and a preserved Aerospatial Caravelle at Arlanda Airport in Finnair colours. You could even stay in a decommissioned 747 as a hotel at Arlanda, something I haven't tried yet, but I certainly intend to. I returned to London on LNRLA, a DC-941 named Arf Viking of Scandinavian Airline Systems. 
That was to be my last trip of 1989. It wasn't until May of 1990 that my next international foray began, and that will have to wait for a whole new episode. <laughs>